God's word is in this particular chapter we have already begun to look at and last time we did so we looked at the first three verses and we particularly tried to concentrate on the fact that faith is a foundational grace in the Christian life. It's the only foundational grace. Love is not a foundational grace. We're not saved by love, but we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And faith, as we saw, particularly in the first verse, lays hold on what is unseen. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And it also teaches us this verse that faith actually evidences an unseen world, that there is a sense in which faith itself is a witness to the things of God. Uh, And we saw that even for Noah's generation, that was the case. As Noah lived out his life of faith, that in itself was evidence to the people. And that is surely what is being alluded to in verse 7, where it says, by this matter of preparing the ark, he condemned the world. Now, this, this evening we're going to, while looking at verses 4 to 7 uh, as a whole, we will be particularly thinking of verse 6, another introductory statement to this chapter, another s- statement which undergirds the whole chapter, where it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There's clearly a negative and a positive way at looking at verse 6, the first part. It's phrased negatively. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. And therefore, we can turn that around and quite legitimately say there's a positive aspect that faith is pleasing to God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if you do not believe that God is, if you do not believe he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, you cannot please God. Here is what we might call a bare minimum in pleasing God, to believe that he is, that he's there, that there is a God, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. One of the things that the Apostle Paul says in his argument in 2 Corinthians, and particularly in chapter 5, as he speaks about the motivation which he and his fellow workers had, chapter 5, verse 9, He says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. And we can summarize, we can simplify that statement quite simply this way. We make it our aim to please Jesus. So tonight we're making it our aim to please Jesus. And how do we please Jesus? How do we please God? Well, by having this faith of which Hebrews 11 says speaks by exercising this faith. Now, to help us do that, we need to understand why faith pleases God. What is it about it that's pleasing to God? And there are a number of things we can say here. 
Firstly, it pleases God because it credits God's word. It credits God's word. Even if others do not give credit to God's word, even if others doubt God's word, faith goes in the opposite direction. In fact, it's even more pleasing to God to take his word as being true when others are doubting it. Uh, When others say he doesn't exist, when others say he's not there to give you anything, he's not there to do anything for you, when you swim the opposite direction, uh, you are pleasing to him. Now, there is abundant evidence for the existence of God in creation. I'm not intending, and the Bible itself doesn't really give us a sort of defense of his existence. It just tells us that he is, and it tells us that part of the evidence for him is there in the creation. And it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. It's the fool who doubts and denies him. And although he is invisible, yet he is a reality. And there's something peculiarly insulting to God to deny or doubt his reality. It often starts by the doubting or denying of his sovereignty. At least it has been so in the history of the church, that in ages where Christianity was more widespread in civilization, the first area of truth that tended to be doubted was that he, God, almighty God, saves whom he will save. We think back to the days of uh, the Arian heresy. And we think back to the days of the Arminian, very uh, false teaching, nearly a heresy. To deny his sovereignty, to deny his electing grace, is in fact part of denying that he is, that there is this almighty being who will save who he will save and have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. And one of the first things we have to do is to humble ourselves under the word of God and credit it, even though everything perhaps in our culture screams against it. This is one of the characteristics of these early men of God that are here mentioned. Here is Enoch, for example, living in a very degenerate age, perhaps even more degenerate than our own age, an age, we're told, in which uh, there was much violence uh, and much immorality. And we're told in the letter of Jude something about his ministry. We're told Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, You can count up the times that word ungodly is used in that verse and you'll see that that was the way things were. That was how society was. So when he stood up to prophesy against this, when he stood up to say the Lord is coming to judge with ten thousands of his holy ones and to execute judgment, he was saying something that was utterly countercultural, utterly against what people were saying and believing. 
but he credited God's word. Or take Noah. Noah living in a very similar time. And we're told in Genesis chapter 6 what the days were like in the days of Noah. Let me just find it for you. Genesis 6 verse 13. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. That is what God is going to do. And then it goes on to say, uh, I've lost my reference, I'm afraid. Um, Yes, verse 11 and 12. The earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And then in the Gospels in Luke and chapter 17. Verse 26 And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was a similar day to our day, a day where there was violence, where there was an ignoring of God, there was living lives without God and there's there's a suggestion of immorality in the way in which Christ describes it in Luke 17. And we're told that Noah divinely warned of things not yet seen, not yet seen, i.e. a flood, an immense uh, outpouring of water from the heavens above and from the earth beneath. But people just carried on living normally because they just didn't believe it. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We're not told exactly what he said or what his message was, except, of course, it was of righteousness. But we can be sure of this, that he explained what the ark was for, that it was a a place of safety from the coming flood, because he believed God's word. And 2 Peter 3 brings it right up to date, and it tells us that even as it was in the days when the early church was being established, so it will continue to be that there, are, that there is this uh, particular objection, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And there's a willing ignorance of the fact that there was a flood, uh, a cataclysmic global flood by which God caused judgment to come upon the whole world. And then, as, as far as the, uh, the last judgment is concerned, that flood of fire, the heavens and the earth, now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, why does it matter to believe this? Well, it matters, firstly, because obviously what it is telling us is something that makes us sit up and makes us aware that we have to, to do something about it. We have to be ready for that judgment. 
We have to be prepared for it, prepare to meet your God, says Amos. But there's more to it than that. Why should we believe it? Because it's from God. This is what God says. It's crediting him as being true, as actually meaning what he says. It's not just producing words and blather and things to help religious people, but because God actually has something to tell us. In the book of Psalms, in Psalm 12, we're told that God's word is like silver tried in the furnace seven times. I'm not into that kind of thing, but I know basically what goes on. The silver ore or whatever it is is heated up, even in the days in which Psalm 12 was written. They could heat it up hot enough in that furnace for the silver to melt. And then all the scum, all the other uh, metals and things, they rise to the surface and they're skimmed off. And then it cools down and it's pure. But then they take that pure silver, according to this word, and they heat it up again a second time. There can hardly be any scum left, hardly any other metals left, but if there are any, they're skimmed off. And then it's cooled again. It's really pure. But it goes through this process seven times as the psalmist envisages it. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. So when someone in lazy insolence says, well, I know it says this in the Bible, but actually, really, I think... It is deeply insulting, deeply insulting to God. It is not giving him the credit. And when you say, well, I know it says this in the Bible, but I'm not so sure that God would do that. It is deeply insulting to God. Faith is the opposite of that. Faith is pleasing to God because it takes him at his word. It credits his word. And secondly, we see in our statement that faith credits God's character. Faith credits his character because it says, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, what aspect of his character there is being credited? I put it to you, it is his love. Faith credits God's love. It's the exact opposite of the miserably suspicious view of men and women towards God. Men and women in their sins who have the nerve and the cheek to argue with him and doubt him and call him to the bar of their judgment, this miserably suspicious antagonistic view, this is the opposite of that. It says, yes, I know that if I seek him and if I find him, he will bless me. I know that there's something there to be got. I know I haven't got it. But I know that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Jesus tells us this in his foundational kingdom manifesto sermon on the mount. He says, if you are a father and your child comes to you and asks for bread, will you give him a stone? And of course, that would be child abuse. That would be awful. If he comes and asks for fish, will you give him a snake? 
That would be cruel child abuse. Is God like that? Of course not. You who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more would your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? To those who diligently seek him, he gives good things. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So there's a particular aspect of the character of God that faith credits. It credits that he does indeed mean what he says. If you seek me, you will find me. And he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He's someone who blesses you. And the reason perhaps if you haven't yet done that, if you haven't yet sought him, is because you don't really believe he loves you. You don't really believe what the Bible tells us, that God is love. You don't credit that. You look around at all that's going bad and wrong in the world and all in, in your life, and you say, well, it's all God's fault, but God tells us it's our fault. It's our sins that have separated between us and our God. It's our sins that have brought his judgment upon Adam and Eve and upon the human race. It's the sin of man. So faith is pleasing to God because it credits his word, it credits his love, and Noah surely was crediting the character of God and the love of God when he built that huge ark. An ark, yes, for all the various species that were going to be housed in the ark of the species of animals, but for any others of the human race who would come in, not least his family. He said that God is providing this for us in this cat- catastrophe that's about to overtake us. God is, is kind. He's going to save me. He's going to save my family. He's going to save whoever will come in. Thirdly, faith is pleasing to God because it looks to him alone to save us from judgment. That's really all embedded in this section, verses 4 to 7, indeed in the whole Bible. It's the ark, which is the place of safety. And if we think of Abel, who offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, we're taken back to Genesis chapter 4 there, and we're reminded in that passage about the two offerings, the two sets of gifts. There was Cain's offering. It was a pretty good offering, I should think, in the early history of the creation. I should think the soil was very fertile and the plants would have great vigor and therefore the fruit of the ground would have been extremely good. And Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord And Abel brought his gift. He brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And we're told the Lord respected Abel and his offering. And we're told that Cain knew about this. We don't know how. But Cain knew that his offering had not been accepted. And he knew Abel's had been. And that was why he killed Abel. He was jealous of him. How did he know? Some say that there was fire from heaven upon the sacrifice of Abel. That's quite possible. But you see, Cain brought something really good that he had to offer. Abel brought 
a sacrificial animal, the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And we have evidence in Genesis 3 in the previous chapter that already the institution of sacrifice pointing forward to the sacrifice of Christ had started because God clothed Adam and Eve with skins, tunics of skin. What was happening? Cain was looking to himself. He was a self-made man. And he went out and built a city later on. He was a self-made man. He was looking to himself. He was looking to his own resources, his own skills. And the best that the land could provide, it was no doubt a generous gift. And God didn't want it. He wanted what he was providing. The gift that he was providing was a sacrificial animal. Pointing to Christ as alone, the one who can save us from the judgment of God. And faith is pleasing to God because it confesses that my ideas and my best are not good enough for God. And I must take the way of escape that God provides and there's no other way of escape and it therefore honours Jesus Christ as the only saviour of the world. That's why salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's him who has made to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. You see, faith looks to God and says, I can't, I, can, I can't save myself. I cannot save myself from my sins. I cannot go to heaven in my own merit. There's nothing that I can bring that will earn salvation, but you can do it, God. Abel took that way and God testified of his gifts and through it Abel still speaks to us of the way of salvation even though he's dead. Are you pleasing God in this sense? Are you looking to Christ and Christ alone as your saviour? Are you honouring Jesus Christ as the only saviour of the world or are you saying yes I know he's died for sinners I do believe in him but I'm also going to add what I do Because that's an important part of things. No, it's not. It's nothing. It's nothing. It means absolutely nothing when it comes to salvation. There's only one door. And the door is Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Faith credits God's word, it credits his love, it looks to God alone to save you from the judgment. Fourthly, it responds with love for God. Faith pleases God because it brings out fruits which please God. Faith pleases God because it leads to fruitfulness which in themselves please God. The fruit are not fruit to save us, but they are the evidence of saving fruit, of saving faith. And faith alone has this wonderful byproduct that it issues in love for God. Even if everybody else hates him and is against him and is ignoring him, faith, because it brings forth love for God, therefore issues out in a life that swims against the tide. That's very important in the context of the letter to the Hebrews. We've already mentioned Enoch. In an ungodly day, in an ungodly time, he was a preacher of righteousness. We've mentioned the same 
with Noah and just read what it has to say about the life of Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, verse 22. It doesn't have a lot to say, but it does say this, or verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now this is before the flood. This is in the days of violence and corruptness upon the earth. This is in the days, as chapter 6 tells us, when the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. The criterion was not godliness. The criterion of marriage was, or, or of cohabitation was something else. And for 365 years, Enoch walked in the opposite direction. Why did he do it? Because he was cantankerous? difficult to live with no because he walked with God and you can only walk with God if you love God you can only walk with God if that if you are having close communion with him you can only obey him if you love him because love as Jesus says is a sign obedience I should say is a sign of love if you love me he says keep my commandments that's why faith is pleasing to God. Yes, it may be a naked grace. It certainly is a naked grace, but it immediately leads to other graces. And love is the very prominent one of those. It's the fulfillment of the law. In Galatians chapter 5, we're told that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. Notice that, against such there is no law. There cannot be any law against goodness, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Because these are things to do with love for God and love for our neighbor, love for men and women. Terrible days. And yet Enoch loved God. Do you love God? I'm not asking you now whether you believe in God, but I'm asking you another question, a follow-up question. Do you love God? Because if you have real saving faith, you will love God. And you will walk with God. And you will keep on walking to the end because True faith perseveres to the end. Our writer to the Hebrews who says that, we're not of those who draw back to perdition, but we are of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Yes, we have faith, but that faith issues in love, and we love him who first loved us. Do you love him? So much that you're prepared to go against what public opinion says and what society says and what everyone else is doing on this Sunday night as they put up their feet and keep warm. Do you love him? Will you do anything for him? Are you prepared to suffer for his namesake if he calls you to that? 
So, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So, if we really believe that, how are we going to respond? Well, we're going to respond in terms of what Jesus says. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. It'll take us straight to him. If we believe that, it'll take us straight to the Father. It'll take us straight to the Son. It'll take us straight to the Holy Spirit. And that'll be pleasing to him. Because he doesn't have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he doesn't have any pleasure in us dropping into hell in our sins. It is a matter of great pleasure to him when you and I are reconciled to God through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.